0: Here's what I want you to do: visit ActiveSkinRepair.com dot com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and get twenty percent off your order when you use code Joyful. Again, that's www dot com. Find out more about the product and get twenty percent off your order when you use the code Joyful.
1: If this book had said nothing but the word repair, it would be a great book. Repair, 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 because. You can always start again. You can always begin again, knowing the direction you want to take. It's kind of like a sailboat. For those of you who sail, you know, when you're going toward the wind, you go a little bit to the left, then you come through the wind, you go a little bit to the right, then you go through the wind, a little bit to the left. You don't say, oh, I've got right into the wind. No, it never works like that. You got to go back and forth and back and forth.
0: Hey, friends, happy new year. Happy 2020! Oh my gosh, it is wild to be coming to you now in these first few days of a new year, a new decade. Welcome to the Joyful Courage podcast. I'm so happy that you're here. I'm Casey, your host, parent coach, positive discipline trainer, and mom of two teenagers on the path of self-discovery and self-growth as I navigate all there is to navigate on the parenting journey right alongside of you. I'm stoked that you're here. I'm so excited for this show. Oh my gosh. Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson together with me on the podcast today. I know, I'm dying. It was so amazing. I felt like I had a seat at the big kids table. They're talking about their new book. You're gonna hear all about it. And here, I wanna let you know something new. So you know that I have a Patreon community, a group of parents that pay $5 a month to be a part of a private community where I do Facebook Lives every Monday, answering questions that come up in the group, Or bantering back and forth with anyone who is watching the live at the time that it's being recorded. I'm also adding in a Wednesday edition to the Patreon community where we are going to discuss the podcast. So it's going to be a review of the podcast that came out that week, and patrons get to ask questions, dig deeper with me. I'm super excited to start that. So if you're interested in just upping the connection that you have with me and with the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash joyful courage. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash joyful courage and choose in to the $5 membership and you'll get that extra weekly together time with me on Mondays and Wednesdays in the group. It's pretty awesome. I'm super stoked that you're here. I can't wait to share this show with you. Please let me know what you think. I really appreciate the emails and messages that you send, and especially I appreciate the reviews that you leave on Apple Podcasts. The most recent review came in in December from Queen of Spirit. Queen of Spirit wrote, I absolutely love how real Casey is and the variety of topics that she covers for parents. Really appreciate her energy and spirit, five stars. So it makes a huge difference when you leave a review. It lets other people who are looking for podcasts know that you love this one and there's a much better likelihood that they will check it out. So just go on over to Apple Podcasts. You can go right into your podcast app find my show and scroll all the way to the bottom. There should be a little purple link that says write a review. So yay, 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 yay. Without further ado or conversation, I give you my interview with Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Tina Bryson. Welcome back, listeners. I am so glad to have you, and I'm super excited to let you know that I have two guests on today, and they are both your some of your favorite past episodes. They were the guests for those shows. Dr. Dan Siegel is here. Dan is an internationally acclaimed author, award-winning educator, and child psychiatrist. He is currently a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, where he also serves as a co-investigator at the Center for Culture, Brain, and Development and co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center. Dan co-authored some of our favorite parenting books, including The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, and The Yes Brain. With the other guests joining us today, he also wrote Brainstorm, The Bible for Parents of Teens, Parenting from the Inside Out, and Aware, which... Came out the summer of 2018, and he came on to discuss that book with me. Dr. Tina Bryson is the other guest that we get to hear from today. She is the co author with Dan Siegel of three New York Times bestsellers, soon to be four, and is the executive director of the Center for Connection in Pasadena, California. Tina is also a pediatric and adolescent psychotherapist. She keynotes conferences and conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world. There is so much more I could add to the bios of both of these guests. I could truly go on and on. They're here today to share about their latest book, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired. You all know that this is what I love to talk about. I'm completely honored to welcome them back to the show. Dan and Tina, hello. Welcome back to the podcast.
2: Hi. So glad to be here.
1: Uh, Great to be here. Thank you. Hello, Casey. Hello, Tina.
0: Hi. <laughs> yay, yay. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to write this particular book and how it's different from what we've already seen from the two of you?
3: Dan, do, do you, you want to start?
2: Okay. See, like we both just love each other. So we're just going <laughs> to both keep offering each other. Getting the <laughs> you
1: go, you go. Like the, the Portlandia episode where they're driving a <laughs> Yugo car and they keep on staying there all day long going, Yugo, no, Yugo. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, I think this book always needed to be written. And I, you know, I, I was telling someone yesterday, I think this book has been burning to be written for a long time and I had to write it and I had to write it with Dan. Um, and I think a big piece of this is, you know, I think Dan and I would both say, and Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's, it would be really rare, regardless of who our audience is for us to not talk about the main point of this book. So when, wherever Dan and I go, whoever is in our audience, we always at some point typically will talk about the power of presence and the the power of um, relationships and, and helping people um, build secure attachment in whatever their relationships are. And actually just a, a funny kind of little anecdote is that you know this idea that one of the best ways for us to predict how well a kid turns out is by looking at this research from decades and decades and across many cultures that says that the way a parent shows up and, and whether the, the degree to which they provide um, secure attachment relationships, that this is a huge predictor for how well kids turn out on many things that we measure them on. And What's exciting about that is there's a lot of hope in that message. It's something that we can change regardless of whether or not we had that kind of attachment growing up or um, regardless of where we are now and in the way that we raise kids. And so Dan and I sort of always would talk about that. And at the end of Whole Rain Child, which is the book we're most known for and that is we're so honored that it's so well loved. At the end of that book, um, we had this really long conclusion And a big chunk of it was talking about the main idea from The Power of Showing Up, saying that really one of the most important things we can do is to provide the four S's and to be present and and build secure attachment. And our editors said, this is so powerful and it's distracting from all the other super important good stuff in this book. Let's pull it out and maybe that's a future book. So from the very beginning, it's sort of this book that's been brewing. And uh, so that's one of the things I'm so excited about is it's like, it's now getting ready to be, you know, it's ready to be born now.
0: I love that. And I really speaks to the, I mean, there's so much scaffolding that happens in parenting. And I know as a parent coach myself, you know, it would be great if all we, if, if the only thing parents needed were like tools and strategies, (laughs) That would be amazing, you know, because I can offer tools and strategies, but then you get in the real life situations, the real life challenges, the grocery store with the melting down um, toddler or, you know, the slamming of the, the teenage door after a not so great conversation about curfew or homework and those tools fly out the window, right? Or they become this kind of robotic regurgitation that doesn't really have meaning. So you talked about attachment, Tina, and the book starts off with some information about attachment. And as I was telling you before I hit record, my introduction to attachment was that, you know, one of the, my favorite book, the first two years was the baby book by Dr. Sears. And he talks about attachment parenting. And it's about, you know, I, I mean, as I think back, it was like, okay, I'm going to hold them close and nurse on demand and just meet their needs as they come up. So, you know, that's really what I thought attachment was all about, but there's this whole other expansive realm of information, which is attachment science and attachment theory. What is that about when you say that, when you throw that out? What do, you, what do parents need to understand about attachment?
1: Well, Casey, it's a really interesting question. And first of all, I just want to say, uh, Tina, what you just said was just so beautiful. And, you know, it's such a fun and wonderful honor to do these books together. Uh, I was just teaching uh, in Texas and in, in Houston, actually. And so many people came up about the different books we've written and saying how it impacted them. So I just want to, Tina and I rarely get time to say, hey, so I just wanted to say that it's a beautiful thing. And Casey, you, right before we started recording, you, you, know, you, you heard me say that just two days ago, I finished the revisions of the, the Developing Mind, which is this book that talks about attachment and the brain and relationships and health and stuff like that. And it's the first kind of book in, in a whole view of the mind that uh, can, can be called interpersonal neurobiology. And this was now the third edition uh, with thousands, literally thousands of references. So when you look at attachment, it's important to say that, you know, words we use are, are words we use. And so people can use words however they want. When Tina and I are using the word attachment, it draws on the science of attachment, Uh, which is a field of study that carefully looks at across cultures, like Tina beautifully mentioned, you know, the way children from the beginning, from infancy, interact with their caregivers, their attachment figures, and uh, how that attachment relationship between the attachment figure, which is often apparent, but it is absolutely not just the mother. Uh, It's not even just the mother and father. We as a species have something called alloparenting, allo parenting, A L L O, and then the word parenting. Allo means other. And Sarah Hurdy beautifully writes, the scientist beautifully writes about mothers and others, that book that um, captures all of this, that we as a species evolved to have more than one attachment figure. So if you hear anyone say to you that a baby is only supposed to be attached to one person, then they're not reading the science. And that is absolutely not what attachment research shows. It's not what the study of being human shows. So you want to be really careful about different approaches and the words they use. And what we try to do is build everything we say on science. And the science of attachment is so powerful. And one of the things that it says is that no matter what happened to you as a parent, how you come to make sense of what happened to you allows you to be present. So literally in our terms, You can show up in so many ways. You can show up emotionally where you're present with your feelings. You can show up with awareness. So you can really be there to take in whatever your child is going through. You can focus your attention with something called attunement, where you focus on the inner life of the child, not just the physical world of the child. And that the child will have a relationship with you and other attachment figures, not just you, that will allow them to learn things like who they are, the importance of relationships, their ability to regulate their own emotional states, their way of realizing that their feelings can be, as Fred Rogers beautifully says, you know, mentionable and then therefore manageable. That's all about secure attachment. And, you know, what we do is draw on all this science and having just finished the Developing Mind third edition, I can tell you there's a ton ton, ton of science out there. But when you get familiar with it, you can actually synthesize it in a way and then communicate it, which is what Tina and I try to do in a way that's really helpful. So the reason we wrote The Power of Showing Up was because parents really need to know the science and learn how to apply the science in their day-to-day parenting so that in terms of attachment, They can have the basics of what they need of making sense of their own past, you know, and then showing up, which basically means being present so that whatever their child is presenting to them at whatever age, whether it's they're one or 11, or, you know, I've got a 25 year old and 30 year old, you know, and I just hung out last night with my 30 year old and it's about relationships in general, you know, how do you be present for what's being said, you know, your own expectations or reactions, but then you move yourself toward a more receptive place. And it's really where love comes from, you know, and it's love expressed in the kind of interactions where a child feels felt, feels understood. You know, we, we bring it into these four S's. And ultimately what they mean is that a child feels really comfortable in her skin, that she has an internal compass so that she has resilience, um, can be both humble and have a lot of, you know, what you call chutzpah or, you know, have a lot of feeling like, you know, I can I can take this on. I, I can mm-hmm. feel what's going on inside of me. I know it's just my feelings, but I, I feel like I can express them to someone else and we can have mutual belonging in how we connect to each other. So anyway, it's so exciting because I got to tell you, Tina and I just finished doing the audio book for showing up. And it was so thrilling to actually... See how these really interesting and important complex ideas um, can be laid out for parents in a fun and practical way.
0: Yeah. I want to come back to something and I know that we could spend the entire time talking about it. And I kind of alluded to it a little bit ago, but that work around, you know, the, the deeply personal work of parenting, right? So my listeners have heard me say the parenting journey is a lifelong personal development workshop, right? (laughs) I mean, it's just every day, every interaction sometimes feels like an opportunity for us to recognize, oh, where is this reaction coming from? And, you know, what dots, dots can I connect and how can I do something differently? Which if we're on top of things all the time is exhausting. And I don't expect anyone to be able, you know, we're just we're human, we're too human to be perfect. Um, But what you said around how we come, it's not about what happened to us, but how we come to make sense of what happened to us as a child. So there's that internal work. And my listeners, I've been talking a lot recently about my own journey in therapy over the last couple of months and, you know, and how useful it is for me you know, there's certain things that get under my skin and they get under my skin quick. And to go back and realize, oh, that's where that comes from. That's how I made sense of a particular relationship or um, situation that would come up time and time again as a child. And then noticing how it is intersecting with my current relationship with my own children. So there's that piece, right? And then and what I really want to get into are these four S's that you alluded to, um, but I but I do want to say to listeners, and I I know that you both would align with this, that it's bigger than just tools and strategies. So I want listeners to really know this isn't about knowing what to do or what to say. It's really about being in the experience of relationship with our child, and being curious and and inquisitive around like, huh wow, it's really hard for me to navigate this right now. And it's probably less about your child and more about whatever is being brought to the surface for you. Would you, the two of you agree with that? Like, how do you make sense of that in the work that you do?
2: Yeah, I would say that we have to remember that a big part of who we are as parents and how our own brains are developed and have developed over time and the kind of um, implicit memories that get encoded in us that are a source of where our reactions come from. You know, what's automatic for us? A, the, a massive portion of that is based on the experiences we've had, right? So the brain wires based on the kinds of experiences we have. And so we we often as parents think that we can't, you know, you will you will rarely see Dan and me say, here are the one, two, three things you should do in this exact situation, because every right. child is different, every parent is different, every situation is different. And the key is really more about being present and attuning. But what what's important is that when we don't well, let me say it this way. Dan and I, in in all of our books, always have something in there about our own reflection. And, and in this book, we call it showing mm-hmm. up for ourselves because we can't provide our children experiences that wire their brains in, in optimal ways or in ways that we intend for them to, to be developed, like um, to learn how to actually be present. Like we want our children to learn how to be present and not distracted and disconnected. We can't give our children those experiences if we're not modeling them and if we're not mm-hmm. doing them. And so that's why that portion of self-exploration and the the ongoing journey, as you beautifully said, it is so important in addition to what the science says, which is that the best predictor for how we're able to be present and provide secure attachment experiences to children, whether we're the parent or the grandparent or the teacher or whoever else is, uh, is the caregiver providing the support to the child is not whether or not we had those experiences, but rather have we come to make sense of them? Have we come to, in the literature, it's called a coherent narrative. Have we developed a coherent narrative or a story where we're not running from the past and, and running from looking at our experiences, but we're also not flooded and entangled with them in a way that they control us without us having some awareness and some intentionality around it. And so that's why looking at this, looking at ourselves is so important. And, and Dan, I had the same experience when I read my half of the audio book. You know, Casey, this, is a, this, this can be a really tough topic to talk about because, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're really wanting to, to talk to parents who are really checked out or distracted, Mm -hmm. disconnected, still consumed in their own challenges that they haven't worked through yet. And we want to say to them, like what your child needs most from you is to show up or to the parents who are hyper parenting and thinking they have to do and be everything and, and provide their kid with stuff or with tons of enrichment classes and the most expensive this and the most expensive that. And to say to those parents, you don't need to do all of that. What your child needs most from you is to show up. And in this book, we address hard stuff like saying, you know, here's what happens in your child's brain when you are the source of terror or fear. You know, Mm -hmm. when you and your spouse or your significant other are screaming at each other in front of your children, that can have a significant impact on your child's nervous system in that moment. And so we're talking about really hard things. And I... I just felt moved time after time as I was reading the audiobook because I feel like this book is a warm, generous, kind, welcome invitation to parents to do that work that you're talking about there, where we say you don't have to be perfect. You can mess up all the time. You can have your own struggles and things that you're working through. And you can um, continue to reflect on those and show up so that your child can reap the benefit of this secure attachment.
0: Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Thank God. Spring into summer is my favorite time of year. After turning 50 last September, I've been really working on my physical health and well-being and can honestly say that I am feeling better in my body than I have felt expert, Juliana Urtube. Getting the support our kids need in school can feel tricky, and we aren't always sure what it is that they need. When I listened to the episode titled, Does My Child Need an IEP? It offered up so much useful information that I could really see supporting parents who are in this consideration. The host is so knowledgeable and really breaks down the content in a way that helps listener Mm, beautifully spoken. Thank you, Tina. I'm yeah. so excited to get my hands on this book.
1: <laughs> no, it's so beautiful. And Casey, oh, just to build on what Tina, you're magnificently articulating is, you know, I mean, I think part of the challenge of uh, both being a parent and also, you know, uh, being someone who writes books to really communicate directly with parents is, you know, the idea that Either way, as a parent or a writer for parents, you would have a notion of like what should be or the right way to do things or stuff like this. So both as parents, Tina and I really try to take on what I'm about to say. And also as as writers for parents, we want to really recognize that while we're trying to summarize the science that points us in a certain direction, let's say like attunement or any of the S's, you know, like seeing your child, you know, sensing their inner world is what that is. Soothing your child, feeling their distress, having the presence to be able to help them feel soothed and, and, and to get calm and teach them ultimately the skill of internally regulating that distress. And safe, where you both protect them from harm, but also, as Tina's pointing out, moments when there might be things happening from you or from you and your spouse or something that you're doing where you create terror in your child, that is incredibly disruptive to a child's sense of security, the fourth S. So there's being seen, there's being sued, there's safe, and then those build into security. The issue is that life is, you know, as Ed Tronick would call it, messy. Relationships are often not attuned. You're often not seeing someone you're not soothing them. Sometimes you do do things that terrify them. So the key is not that we outline, let's say, the first three S's and say, hey, be the ideal parent and do this all the time. What we're saying is the science is really clear. These three S's, and maybe even another one we talk about throughout, which is making sense of the world, you know, this way, it's called epistemic trust, this way that you come to understand the nature of reality through these interactions with your parents, your attachment figures is embedded in being seen and embedded in being soothed and being safe. And then you develop this overall model of security. But the issue is the messiness, the disconnection, the inevitable ruptures, that's a part of life. The fact that there are ruptures doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It means you're human. And so the challenge that Tina and I always have when we write any of these books and it's certainly true in, the, true in the power of showing up as well, is we say, well, okay, how can we give, just as you said, Tina, this kind, loving invitation to say, hey, look, we're in this together, so here's how we flub up as parents. And, you know, let's look at what a kind of a pathway we would want to set out for being seen, soothed and safe, how that is, knowing that there's always the messiness of disruptions and disconnections. And in fact, that just means you're human. And it's the repair is the word that's used for it scientifically. Mm -hmm. You can call it reconnection or realignment or kind of establishing the being seen of your child, being soothed of your child, being safe of your child. So that instead of you beating up on yourself and saying, oh, I'm a terrible parent. I I read Tina and Dan said, do this. And I didn't do it. I'm just horrible. I mean, you can beat up on yourself if you want, but you don't need to do that because all it means, and all we're trying to say in these books and showing up as just one you know, summary of all this stuff, what we're trying to say is, look, ruptures to connection along these S's happen all the time. Having the view of the S's is really, really, really crucial because then what allows you to sense is when those ruptures have happened because if this book had said nothing but the word repair, it would be a great book. (laughs) Repair, 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 repair. Because you can always start again. You can always begin again, knowing the direction you want to take. It's kind of like a sailboat for those of you who sail, you know, when you're going toward the wind, go a little bit to the left, then Mm -hmm. you come through the wind, you go a little bit to the right, then you go through the wind a little bit to the left. You don't say I've got right into the wind. No, it never works like that. You got to go back and forth and back and forth, you know, and that way of, constantly course correcting is what these repairs are about so we always take a deep breath when we write these books and say how do we communicate this in a supportive loving invitational way just like tina's saying so that instead of it feeling like a listing of judgmental ways you should be if you fail this with the word fail i'm saying it because we that's not a word you need to have but People will get, oh, I failed, I failed, I failed. No, 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 you didn't. You're aware that something is not happening in the way it could. And you now can repair that moment and reconnect because now you have a guideline for the direction you want to sail your boat. And you're going to go through the wind of ruptures as you go a little left, a little right. And that's what it means to be human. And you can be kind to yourself, you know that's both the challenge of writing a book that says, Hey, here's what the science says. And also right. the opportunity is for us to be able to articulate in a way where, you know, it's really as supportive and embracing of these ruptures and the importance of repair. Cause that's actually where kids learn resilience. Cause okay. they say, Oh yeah, I wasn't seen then. And there was a repair. I wasn't soothed. Oh, then there was repair, or I even felt scared. And there was a repair. So I'm not saying you have to create intentional ruptures in those things because they're (laughs) going to happen anyway. But just remember, we're all human and repair actually builds resilience. I love that.
2: What's great about what you just said there, Dan, too, is that, you know, not only does it build resilience, but it also widens a child's window of tolerance for having Mm -hmm. conflict in other relationships. So it's like, okay, yeah, there's conflict in, in relationships. And, I survived it. It was okay on the other end. you know it uh, we made things better, and maybe we understand each other more. there's even more connection or more intimacy and I think you know it's it's again another opportunity for kids to deal with sort of sitting in a place that doesn't feel good or doesn't feel right, kind of a moment of of a more negative emotion. And to say, I can tolerate that. I can, I can handle that Mm -hmm. because I have these, you know, other people in my life or these people in my life that will show up for me at some point. Right. And that's what I love about this too, is that, you know, while it's not, you know, the book is not and the approach and the science does not lead us to a place where we have a, a very specific point one, a B and C, you know, then you move to point, to roadmap that's very specific and formulaic, it is very practical because, you know, what Dan just laid out there with this, you know, the safe scene, soothed, leading to mm-hmm. the, the experience of secure. You know, I, in some ways, I actually think it's more useful than having a very specific formulaic approach because there are lots of moments, and anyone who's a parent or has ever been in a relationship knows this. that. There are lots of moments, you know, as a parent, as a clinician, as a daughter, as a wife, um, as all of these roles that I play, that I'm not exactly sure what the best response is in the moment. I'm not sure exactly which way to go, but I think having that, you know, whatever is happening in the moment, the the four S's are my North Star. They They are always the answer. You know, if your teenager comes home having, been drinking or your three-year-old is melting down because the tail broke off of her goldfish cracker or your significant other feels like, you know, you were, you were not considering them when you showed up 30 minutes later, whatever, whatever it is, if we can show up in that moment and help the other person feel safe and seen and soothed, that's always the right answer.
0: Hey friends, I'm just jumping in to interrupt the interview for one moment. I have to let you know that I'm super excited to be putting together a new free mini summit for all of you parents out there with teenagers. This time it's five interviews with five experts that I have handpicked and we are talking adolescent mental health. We are talking about the hard stuff. We are talking about self-harm. We're talking about anxiety and depression. We're talking about eating disorders. We're talking about, you know, new therapies that are making a big difference in the lives of teens. I am so excited to welcome my guests, and I'm so excited to share the conversations with you. Again, this is a free mini summit, and you can sign up right now by going to joyfulcourage.com backslash MH Mini Summit joyfulcourage.com slash M H mini summit, all one word. You just need to leave your name and your email and then you're registered. Yeah. Super easy. The summit is the first full week of February and, um, yeah, it's going to be amazing. So I really want you to check it out. joyfulcourage.com slash M H mini summit. All right. Back to the interview. I love that, Tina. It gives us, I like to think of it as an anchor, right? It gives us an anchor. And that, again, it comes back to not having a script necessarily, but having a place to drop into. And the the freedom, like I just, as I, even as I said, dropping in, I kind of dropped my body down. But then what I really recognize is there's so much freedom and expansiveness when I think about, okay, safe scene soothed. All right, what could that look like in this moment? I also want to go back to the repair conversation just really shortly and say that, Tina, I think you mentioned like what we want to um, nurture in our kids, we get to model for them. And I think that when we talk about, when we have conversations about repair and, and the courage to be imperfect, as we'd say in positive discipline, there is an opportunity to model personal responsibility, right? It's our kids' opportunity to say, okay, look, my grownups, who I know love me, but they're human, you know, you make a mistake. And then even though it's uncomfortable, even though there's whatever going on, we're gonna come and own it and make it right and reconnect. And I think that's a lovely opportunity to model as well. But back to the S's, because I really wanna, I wanna know what do they look like in action, right? Safe, seen, soothed. What do you lay out in the book as far as what these S's look like in action, even considering like, okay, well, the first thing it looks like is the parent is regulated and recognizing that there's an opportunity in front of them, right? So from that place, what might it look like?
2: Well, let me tell a quick story about like a five-year-old kid and then I'll tell a quick story about a teenager so we can sort of see what this looks like. So, you know, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that this idea of showing up in the moment, being present and helping your child feel safe, seen and soothed so that over time, Their brain securely knows that if they have a need, someone will see it and show up for them. And then over time, then they are able to do that for themselves, help themselves be safe, seen and soothed and expect that their friends and their future partners will do that for them, too. You know, that's that's sort of the arc of what we're talking about here. A lot of people assume that when we talk about that, we're talking about being permissive. And so I want to be I'm going to give a story about how do we set a boundary While helping our kids feel these S's, and so um, the first thing is to know is that boundaries um, and being predictable and knowing how your parents going to respond can actually help kids feel safe, right? So that's a piece of safety. But being regulated ourselves is the key. So uh, uh, one time, my my little guy um, who was about five at the time, he was really exhausted and he was filthy, and you know, normally I'd be like, fine, skip the bath, but for whatever reason, this night I felt like it was not negotiable, and he had a meltdown getting in the bathtub. And then when it was time to get out, he was having a meltdown about getting out. And, you know, he was upset about this one particular Lego guy. You know, it's not worth getting into the details. You guys know, that you can <laughs> fill in the details, you know, this scene. So um, it's time for JP to get out of the tub. And so I say to him, first of all, I'm checking and making sure I'm regulated because he's already been melting down for a while, you know, melting down to get mm-hmm. into the tub. Now it's time to get out. and Now he's unhappy about getting out. So I make sure I'm regulated. Um, one of the ways I do that is and something I learned from Dan. I put a hand on my heart and a hand on my abdomen right below my belly button and just apply just a little bit of pressure, which is sort of just like a little check in. Um, and it's something that actually is a really soothing experience. So I just sort of it's almost like, a, OK, I'm grounded. I can do this. And um, so I say, JP, it's time to get out. And, you know, he then says he starts going into this kind of amazing for a five-year-old like rhetoric where he's like, you can't get me out of the bath because this isn't even a bathtub and I'm not even in a bath, you know, and he starts like (laughs) doing all this really cute stuff, which I didn't really find that amusing at the time. But um, anyway, I said, okay, well, it's time to get out. You can either get out or as gently as I can, I'm going to help your body get out. So he Mm -hmm. doesn't get out. So as I'm lifting him out of the tub. Which So this is, I've set the boundary. It's time to get out. I'm, I'm enforcing the boundary. It's time to get out. So I'm lifting him out and he starts screaming and yelling and kicking. And I say, I know you're so mad about having to get out of the tub. You really wanted to stay in. So in that moment, he feels safe because he knows I'm regulated. I'm you know, predictable and reinforcing the boundary. I'm not causing him distress by being really overreactive or screaming at him or hurting him in some way. He gets the scene when I say, I know. So my, my response, if you're so mad about getting out his internal experience and how I respond are a match. So he's Mm -hmm. like, she gets me. And then I say, if you need to cry or yell, I'm right here with you while you do that. I will help you. I'm right here with you. So there's the soothed piece. Like I'm going to help you come down. I've got you. I'm here with you. So then he knows then at the end of that experience, and you know, within a few minutes, he calmed down and the dog came up and did something funny. And that helped us transition to bedtime. But you know, in that experience, I'm holding the boundary, but he he feels held and he, he knows mm-hmm. that I can tolerate his big emotions, that he can tolerate his big emotions with support. And so then over time, his brain gets practice going from that dysregulated state back into a state of regulation because I showed up in that moment with presence. Now, I can tell you lots of stories when I didn't do the 4S as well, but those are probably <laughs> less helpful. They're more humorous, but less helpful. And then I'll just really quickly tell about an adolescent. Um, and it's, it's a story from a, a clinic, my clinical practice. So, of course, I'll change some uh, details to protect privacy. And by the way, anytime Dan and I tell stories about our kids, it's because we have permission to tell them. We're always respectful of that. Um, so anyway, I was working with a, a family where um, the mom was a massive yeller. She just had a massive um, fear response. When her children um, did things that she was worried that would lead to negative consequences, and whether that was getting a bad grade or doing something more dangerous, so she she called me and she said, "My son came home drunk last night. He was an adolescent, and she said um, uh, he was throwing up." And so I knew it wasn't a good time to talk to him. He's still sleeping this morning, and I need to talk to you before I interact with him because I'm going to flip my. I know I'm going to do more harm. Mm -hmm. So we sort of talked through, you know, first of all, getting in touch with how afraid she felt you know, and she, her, her brother had been an alcoholic. And so she had a lot of fears around this. And so we sort of first said, this is, let's, let's be present to this moment with your child in this circumstance and not bring all of that sort of sharp music into the moment as best we can. And really, as I coached her, she was able to sit down with her son and say, and this was such a beautiful way that we constructed to, I think, to talk about this instead of screaming and yelling and potentially creating less communication to be able to say my first job is to keep you safe and mm-hmm. when you make decisions that don't keep yourself safe i'm going to step in i'm going to come in and the parameters or you know the the guardrails are coming in closer because i will keep you safe and i understand why you may have you know, experimented with drinking last night, but I'd love to hear more about what the appeal was for you. And they were able to have this collaborative conversation where she was able to get to safe scene. And then, you know, the soothed piece was uh, more just sort of the night before and that morning. How are you feeling? Are you feeling okay? Would, you, let's get you some hydration, you know, just providing some of those physical needs at that time. But I think that idea of, and then of course, at the end of the conversation, then we all together talked about what those parameters would be and what, how are we going to be problem solvers going forward to make sure he's safe and, and, um, and that there are some accountability in place as well. Again, it's not permissive, but it's mm. about helping the child know at the end of the day that if something goes wrong, if they are in distress, if they have a need, we will see it and we will show up for them. Flawed, not perfect, but ultimately that's what our aim is.
0: Uh. Thank goodness for the two of you. I love that. Dan, do you have any stories to add?
1: Oh, I've got a ton of stories, Casey. I just want to sip those two beautiful stories. Tina said, um, just exquisite. But I think the story to say, to build on Tina's beautiful stories is the internal state that we have as a parent. let's just use these two examples where you are at with your own inner world. And if you want to call that your mind or awareness or whatever you want to call it, when we use the term showing up, we meet it on a number of different layers that we talk about in the book. And this layer that I prefer to now is the layer of how do you have the presence of mind to really not freak out, let's say in terms of the last example, you know when you get this message about your adolescent being drunk and you had a drunk brother you know how do you actually stay in this field of awareness that allows you to literally show up yourself for the experience so you're not back in the memories of your brother being drunk and 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 and, and almost losing his life or mm-hmm. the way he threatened other people or all the things that addiction can create So instead of getting lost in those, (laughs) excuse me, those recollections, you are now in this position of saying, thank you, memory. Yes, those are all real. I've taken the time to make sense of how my addicted brother affected the family, affected me, affected my development, affected my attitude towards alcohol. All these layers. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad I took the time. So that's the making sense, showing up process internally. And now you take that presence of mind. And if you want to think about it uh, in this story, just to think about uh, a way of understanding it, you know, if someone's shown up for their own past experiences to reflect on them and make sense of them, then what happens if you picture it like a, a container of water, if you haven't made sense of your past, Your container of consciousness, if you will, is like the size, let's say, of a thimble, or let's make it an espresso cup size. When a challenge in your parenting or anything else in life comes up, think of it like a a tablespoon of salt. And if you haven't made sense of your past, then what happens is your container of consciousness is really restricted, especially when a particular hot button issue comes up in this case, alcohol, drinking, Mm -hmm. because of your experience with your brother. Now that's a challenge. That's a tablespoon of salt. It's dumped into this espresso cup size volume of water. And now you try to drink it. It's too salty. You get overwhelmed. It's not palatable. You can't drink that. Mm -hmm. But imagine if you took time to say, let me understand these S's. How did I have the experience in my own childhood of being seen, of being soothed, of being safe, of making sense when I was a kid and making sense of it now. So I can move, even if I had insecurity from my childhood, I can move beyond these unresolved traumas and losses or beyond this leftover garbage, you can call it this leftover stuff, you know? Mm. So now I've made my container of consciousness go from espresso cup size to hundred gallons. And now whether I'm doing, you know, journal writing or, doing the wheel of awareness and expanding the hub of the wheel. We could talk about that or, you know, going to therapy or whatever the mechanism is to build that container of consciousness. I've now done it so that now I get the phone call, you know, my adolescent is drunk. Now that's the tablespoon of salt. It gets pushed into my experience, my mind, my awareness. But now instead of being espresso cup size, I've done the work. So it's a hundred gallons, stir it up. And then what's the water like to taste? Yeah. It's fresh water. So that's really the inside aspect of showing up. It's that you are doing the work in all these different ways that we outline in the book, you know, so that when you get that phone call or when, you know, something happens with your two-year-old or your four-year-old or eight-year-old or whatever, you know, different ages, there's stories you, you can tell over and over and over again of what it's like when a parent doesn't show up You know, or whether nowadays people are distracted on their phones and their computers and, you know, can have a whole family together for a dinner and everyone's on their little phone. It, you know, that's not showing up. That's literally not showing up. But even if their phone's put away, if someone is pulled away because of their memories of their alcoholic brother, they're not going to be able to show up and be fully present, to be in this receptive awareness, which, as Tina beautifully pointed out, It's not about being passive. Mm -hmm. It's actually about being receptively present. And all the research is very clear. Parental presence is the fundamental way that it isn't so much what we do. It's how we've come to be. And that way of being is something you can learn. And that's why we write these books, because it's not just like, oh, are you this kind of person or not? No, if you are good for you, if you're not too bad. No, it's, <laughs> you can actually learn to be present. Yeah. You know, if you couldn't learn it, there'd be no reason to write a book on showing up or in parenting from the inside out or any of the books we write. It, it, the whole idea is, you know, how can you say I'm fine the way I am and there's room for growth? you know, like, so that's, that's the, that's the tender balance. Right. And, um, uh, and sometimes you need to expand your container of consciousness so you can really show up. And sometimes, and Tina mentioned the word, the window of tolerance. And I was just, you know, reviewing that term from its initial use in the the developing mind, the first edition, you know, it's the idea that there's a, a window if you can picture it and the band of that window is where you, you can get the message My adolescent is drunk Mm -hmm. and you stay integrated is the way we would say it. You stay flexible and open and receptive. That's what showing up is you stay in that window. And if you move outside of the window, it's going to go either to chaos on the one hand, you're flipping out, you're screaming, you're shouting, or rigidity, you shut down and you get really, really like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And whether you're in chaos or rigidity, you're now out of the window. So what, what the showing up book tries to do is, As Tina beautifully said, you want to widen that window, especially for issues that are particularly vulnerable for you, like addiction, let's say, in this particular story. And as you widen that window, before you did it, it was so narrow, you flipped out into chaos or rigidity. You were no longer showing up in chaos, no longer showing up in rigidity. You're now reactive rather than receptive. And all we're saying is that being receptive lets you parent well and role model for your child that... Even if things get really tough, whatever the salt is of life,
2: mm-hmm. your
1: container is so widened that you can take it and stay mm-hmm. with fresh water and drink that water.
2: That's beautiful.
0: That's so powerful.
2: One of the ways that we do that is by doing that reflection piece and by by looking at the kinds of things that have contributed to who we are and the kinds of reactions we have so that they don't sort of hold us hostage, right? And so the one of the ways we, we widen that for ourselves is by doing that making sense process, which is, you know, why we offer it in the book. And You know, I think one of the for me personally, when I started learning about this and was able to kind of reflect on the experiences I had had and the kinds of attachment experiences I had with both of my parents and my grandparents and, you know, other people in my lives, my even my significant uh, romantic relationships and best friends. That what came to be for me and, you know, actually a really funny story is when I learned about the adult attachment interview from Dan which, um, is sort of the gold standard for how we might, um, assess, um, adult attachment patterns um is that you know there are these questions that we we ask to learn about sort of the the mental models or expectations about relationships and so i dan i don't know if i've ever told you this but i i had a family dinner you know with my dad and his parents and and my sister and i started sort of floating some of those questions out there you know as part of the, the family conversation um and uh the answers were phenomenally helpful and very textbook in helping me understand The kind of pattern of attachment I had received as a legacy coming from my grandparents and then my dad and then to me. And, you know, when I really understood the, I I feel like everybody needs to understand these patterns of attachment and how they have influenced us because then it can free us. It can provide so much healing. When I understood my dad's attachment wiring and what his experience was from his parents and how that impacted how he parented me it was incredibly healing and freeing for me to say, gosh, it wasn't about me not being lovable. It was really that my dad's brain didn't get wired to give much attention to emotions Mm -hmm. or to give much attention to my internal world or his own. He didn't know how to do that. And so when I was able to realize that, it actually not only healed and freed me, but it allowed me to move to a place of compassion for him. And to say, wow, he didn't get that growing up. And he didn't get that because his parents didn't. And no one along the way yet had done that reflective process. And so, you know, I think maybe just one reason to buy the book and keep it on your bookshelf forever is so that maybe our grown kids, our children, when they're grown someday, can read it and provide compassion to us and and, <laughs> and give us a pass too. But I think that, that's just remarkable for us to really... able to go back through the generations to provide our own healing but also to offer sort of compassion within ourselves but also to our own parents and grandparents and to know that you know most of us do the best we know how to do given what's going on and that's why these books are so important is because and this is another dan phrase is we can shine the light of awareness on who we've come to be based on our relational experiences. And then we can be intentional and, and not just follow those old patterns that got wired, you know, over generations.
0: I love that. I have my own short story, a family trip with extended family this last summer where I normally slide into my 17 year old defensive self as things come up in conversation with this particular part of my family. And I made an intention at the beginning of the week that I would be my, my fully conscious 45 year old self and see what happened. And I had the best time. And I even was able to kind of notice in a, as an observer the places where I might have, my 17 year old self could have gotten very tied up in a particular comment or a particular look. And it was as if I provided myself some space to see it all happening in front of me and to show up different. So I am all for the personal development work. And my listeners know that I am like, woohoo, let's do it. Figure yourself out. And there is no like final destination there. Like you said, Dan, there's that container of consciousness. There isn't like, okay. And so once you get to the swimming pool size, You're good, you know, that it's really this beautiful, ongoing opportunity that we have to continue to grow and develop and elevate and expand. And I'm just so, so, so grateful for the work that the two of you are doing. I love your books. I know my listeners, I talk about you both tons. Listeners, don't forget that I have two interviews with Tina. I'll put them in the show notes that you can go back to and listen to. And Dan, you and I had that great conversation about your book, Aware, where you did talk about that espresso size cup and the big container and the salt. And and it just reminded me as you were saying that of how, how juicy that conversation that you and I had was. So listeners know that you can get to those interviews in the show notes. I'll put the links in the show notes. Is there anything else that the two of you would like? Any little pearls of wisdom beyond the amazing last hour that we had that you'd like to leave listeners with before we say goodbye?
2: I'd like to just remind all of us that this science is full of hope, and that when mm-hmm. we begin to reflect on some of this stuff, sometimes it's a little heavy, and sometimes it can be, you know, painful. And I, I, you know, the there are several paths of hope that this research leads us to. One is we can absolutely change what our past relational wiring has led us to. That that when we begin to reflect and make sense of it, we can begin to change how we are able to show up in the moment with our kids. So that's one path of hope. A second path of hope is when we start to do that, when we start making changes to be more present, to not terrify our children, but instead calm ourselves and help them feel safe and help Use empathy to help them feel know that we understand them and that we're there to help them calm down. That when we start doing those kinds of things, our children start responding to that, and it starts changing the experiences they have that are wiring their brains as well. And so, you know, that's that's a lot of hope. And I think the last thing I'd like to say, and then Dan, I'd love to hear your last you know thoughts because I always just would sit and listen to you talk all the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is that you know I think this it. This idea is simple that really all we, really what our kids need most from us is to be present but it's not always easy to do and I think one of the most important things we also need to keep in mind is that we need to have people who show up for us you know Dan talked about allo parenting and in our society we're often pretty isolated in this parenting world and so if we're going to show up for our kids, we need to make sure we have people in our lives that are helping us feel safe, seen and soothed and secure. And so we've got to have people around us that show up for us so that we have the capacity to do it for our kids.
0: Mm, Thanks, Tina.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. I, uh, first of all, I love uh, listening to you, Tina too. So (laughs) (laughs) it's a mutual fan club. Um, and Casey, thank you for giving us this opportunity to, to be with you here. And, um, I guess the, um, think the, the the final kind of words i would say for this conversation would be about kind of two two things one you know is the notion that with showing up um the idea is that as we've tried to say today and also in the book you know it isn't about perfection it's about presence you know and and showing up is really about cultivating the art of being present which isn't always about doing stuff and it's not always about you know doing the right things or anything like that. It's dropping out of those shoulds and actually dropping into this place of awareness. Um, And we did talk about a lot last in our conversation, but the idea that you can just be present to show up and be ready for what's happening. The second thing that's very much related to that is the idea of identity. And this is a, this is a hard one to talk about in general. I mean, I just, this the last, chapter of the developing mind there's an entire chapter about it um about identity but i'll just say this that we may have been getting messages in um our modern culture that we all have been embedded in and that these messages they may have been around for at least 2500 years so a long long time and then we're born into this world into these bodies into this life and we get a message that There are categories that exist in the world, like self and other, or, you know, concepts like there's somebody in that body that you were born into that you were called Casey or Tina or Dan. And those are understandable concepts from the categories that we actually construct. And then we have words like our names or even the word self, you know. And so these words, these linguistic symbols, they become part of how culture shapes our experience of reality. So, for example, as a parent, you have all this evolutionarily, you know, created hardwiring as a parent to really want to protect your child and be certain of things and be certain this child will grow well and, you know, be happy and, you know, however you define success, you know, you want them to be successful and really do well in life and all these things. Totally understandable to have some kind of drive for certainty. But here's the thing about this whole business. Seeing the self as separate, that there's a Casey in Casey's body that's only in the body, or maybe even only in the brain. Like people say, the mind is the same as the brain. And that's what all my, you know, academic books are about is challenging that 2,500 year old statement, you know, that in fact, it's not just, a partial truth that is, of course, the brain has a lot to do with what goes on in the mind. But if the self comes from the mind, it's important to realize that the mind and the self are not just in your brain. They're fully in your body. So we're fully embodied. But we are also, at the same time, fully relational. So who Casey is, who Tina is, who Dan is, is our relationships with one another and with Earth. And part of what's happened, I think, on the planet that's leading to such levels of depression, anxiety, and suicide, as well as destruction of our ecological systems, is that people have taken that message, the self is separate. And on the Earth side, they treat Earth like a trash can. Mm -hmm. And on the individual side, you live with this feeling of despair, like something is profoundly wrong. And the good news about becoming aware... And showing up for that possible mistake. And E.O. Wilson, the biologist, you know, calls it a kind of a sensory limitation that leads to an illusion of separateness. Einstein called it an optical delusion of consciousness. So, whether it's a mistaken view from sensory limitations or a psychotic belief, I want to urge all parents and all of us really in our modern culture to think that. This second point, that we cling to the certainty of a separate self because we're desperate to try to guarantee safety for our children, but that desperate clinging to what an artist on the Brooklyn Public Library writes as the flimsy fantasy of certainty is actually destroying our well-being. And instead, what does that mean? It means we realize that uncertainty is what life is made of. And so learning to not just tolerate uncertainty, but actually welcome it, lets us really fully show up. So we're not trying to filter everything through our expectations so we can be certain of the outcome. And the other thing that it does is it takes our identity and it says, okay, I do have an interior bodily aspect to who I am. That's a me or an I. Yet I also, at the same time, have a relational side to my identity, a we or an us, and one way we can say that is me plus we equals we mwe and what's been so interesting teaching this to kids and adolescents and even adults is we becomes a linguistic symbol that goes back to create a concept that who you are is both within and between and a category that actually you are nature you are your relationships so with mwe we get the opportunity to actually liberate ourselves from the false perception or the psychotic belief of separation. And together we can bring more kindness, compassion, connection as we show up for each other and for earth.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. I'm just going to give a moment of silence to let that (laughs) sink in because that's, that's so, it, it, it's so much bigger than parenting, right? I mean, we kind of, can focus in on our kids and everything. But what I'm really hearing you speak into is this human experience and how it's, you know, it's a, it's a part of us. It's a part of the planet. Um, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to dive into that. I think it's so profound um, and oh, such welcome. beautiful permission. I know for me in my current experience, I am definitely a student of uncertainty and <laughs> Not really loving it, Dan, going to be honest, Um, but But also recognizing when I give myself permission to just be with it, that it's actually really freeing. So thank you.
1: Well, you know, the synonym for uncertainty, while it freaks everybody out initially, is actually possibility and freedom, Mm -hmm. you know? Beautiful.
0: Oh, I mean, I could do a whole nother hour with the two of you, but I'm sure you have other things to do. Thank you so much for coming on, please. When is the book coming out and where can listeners get it?
2: January 7th, 2020. Um, they can order it at any online or a physical actual bookstore. Um, and uh, between now and when the book is released, the website, thepowerofshowingupbook.com um, will provide a. Uh, orders with a color copy of the refrigerator sheet of all the main points
1: Ooh, bonus yeah. and you can um, see us in person at different places either individually or collectively and you can find that on tina's website or my website uh and so there's opportunities to actually dive into this journey together in person
2: yeah come, come join us somewhere we always love getting to visit with people Yay. and connect in person and do some face-to-face stuff
0: Yay, I'll make sure those links are in the show notes. I hope you're coming up to Seattle. I won't miss you if you do. Yeah, um, I'll see
1: you there the uh, second weekend of Jan- January January was actually Tuesday, I think yeah.
0: okay, great. Yay, well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Case. Thank
1: you, case. Thank you, Tina.
0: Thank you, Dan. Oh my gosh, wasn't that so amazing? I feel so, super honored and grateful that Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson made time to come and talk on my show. Now get out there and get your hands on their book. It's so amazing. They're so amazing. The work that they're putting out in the world just, I mean, it changes everything, right? It changes everything. And I'm just honored that I get to be in relationship with them. I'm honored that I get to be in relationship with you. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget that the conversation is going to carry on tomorrow in the Patreon group. So if you are not already a $5 subscriber once a month paying five bucks towards the Joyful Courage podcast, then get on over to... Patreon.com slash Joyful Courage and sign up so that you can be a part of our discussion of this very podcast, this very conversation tomorrow in our private group. Um, Anybody else, don't forget we've got community and conversation happening at the Live in Love with Joyful Courage Facebook group and Joyful Courage for Parents of Teens. You can follow me on Instagram at joyful underscore courage or just my business page on Facebook, Joyful Courage. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Tay, for all the work you do for me. Chris Mann at Podshaper, thanks for the way you make my show sound so good. Appreciating you. Thank you, Allison Tedford, for writing my show notes. I will see all of you next week for a brand new solo show. Until then, be well, be calm, take breaths, show yourself some self-compassion. This work is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) Bye.